next Wednesday, any who are available in the afternoon, we really need some help to help the Pruitts load up their stuff and uh, on the moving vans or moving truck, and then uh, they're going to be in Portland for a little while to be close proximity to OHSU as Thomas and the family continue to uh, uh, walk along this hard journey of faith and uh, ask for the Lord's blessing on uh, their endeavors for sure. So uh, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. Um, maybe there are a person or two on the FM radio in the parking lot. I don't know. We're glad you're here in whichever way you're able to be here with us. Uh, this next week, Alicia and I are actually going to be uh, out of town. We are taking our trip uh, for summer, just the two of us. And uh, maybe you shouldn't wait for, you know, all the travel until retirement. So uh, Jonathan's going to be preaching. Jonathan's one of our youth ministers here at the congregation. He's going to be talking about discipleship, which is so important. It's central to the life of the church. And so I think that'll be a good thing, and don't miss that. These last couple weeks, uh, I've been talking about making plans. And I've suggested that the very best plan you can make for your life is one that is align, lining, aligning yourself with God's plans and God's purposes. And the extent to which you are about actually about God's plans in this world, that's the extent to which your plans are going to be 100% successful. Because when it's for the Lord, even when you lose, you've already won if your heart is in it for the Lord. And just because you decide to go all in for Jesus, it doesn't suddenly make everything easier. It actually makes things harder a lot of times. You're going to fail along the way. You're going to need to repent at some time or another. Jesus is a choice you have to make in your life over and over and over again with each situation as those situations arise, moment by moment. And uh, it's an impossible thing. So this morning, I've been uh, spending a lot of time in Luke's gospel, and I wanted to talk about power power, the power you need to fulfill the plans of your life, the power you need to live a triumphant life in the Lord. The life of discipleship is, strictly speaking, an impossible life. It's impossible to be, uh, to do things the way God wants without help, help from others, primarily the help of God. Uh, you cannot do it by yourself. The Christian life, uh, strictly speaking in that regard, is a miraculous life. It is impossible to do it all right without the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Christians aren't the only people in this world looking for power. The power to be healthy, uh, the power to be secure, the power to be comfortable, uh, we need power in all kinds of ways. We need power to run our, our screens, our entertainment devices, our work devices. We need power to heat and cool our homes so they're more comfortable. We've all learned in some way or another that money is power. 
There's power in money. It takes a lot of money to pay my e-web bill. Have you, rest of you, any of you noticed that utilities are getting more expensive? I don't know. Maybe that's just my place, my house. You know, human beings, we're created to exercise dominion and to be stewards of the world around us. So I think there's something hardwired in us to seek out power, power to make things better for uh, ourselves, power to um, do some kind of task that we need done. Uh, We seek to harness power, utilize power, uh, power for a tangible benefit to make things better for us. So if you were to ask the average American, what is the greatest power ever released by humans? What do you think the greatest power is that's ever been released by humans? I don't know. Here, here's maybe one of them. A thermonuclear atomic device. The destructive power unleashed by splitting the atom. The the electricity and power that we can produce uh, in nuclear uh, power plants. Uh, Splitting the atom, we've obviously even found ways to weaponize that, to unleash horrible destructive power in this world. Another one maybe, and this is one we're still trying to figure out, is not just splitting atoms apart, but putting them together crashing them into each other at such high speeds that they form something bigger and there's more power released uh, in that collision than the input to accelerate those particles uh, is put in so that you have exponential uh, growth in the power there. We're still trying to figure this out. We're on the cusp of it. We can't quite maintain it. Uh, It's not quite economically viable yet, but there's a lot of hope Um, associated with this. What is the power that Jesus shows us? See, I think we we look at the power of splitting the atom. We look at the power of creating uh, something, some exponential power growth by crashing atoms into each other. What about the power that makes an atom, that makes something out of nothing. The kind of power that Jesus shows us in the scriptures. Something out of nothing. Think about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 from Luke chapter 9, where it's just a few loaves and fish that in the hands of God becomes sufficient to feed a group of people greater than 5,000. What about the power to stop a chain reaction? The power to control nature? uh, The power to suspend the laws of physics? Jesus who walks on water. Jesus who calms the storm. In Luke chapter 8 it says, Who is this who commands even the wind and the waves? What about the power of regeneration and the power of healing? 
to go against the, the physics law of everything descending into chaos? What about the power to make chaos come back into order, to regenerate? What about the power to make dead things become alive? How much power is that? So we read about that power, the story of Lazarus in, in John's Gospel. In Luke, it's the, the son of the widow from Nain, and it's the raising of Jairus, the synagogue leader's daughter. Some wonderful stories that illustrate something about the kind of power that Jesus wielded is definitely power that comes from God. So people may think of the stories of Jesus as a curiosity, but something interesting to think about maybe, but for most people, they're very pragmatic when it comes to finding out how to get the power for their lives. For most Americans, money is power. And so we seek money ahead of other things. Uh, we're all seeking it one way or another. The scriptures don't have a problem with us seeking money but in priority there. They, we are told to seek first the kingdom. of Your heavenly Father knows you need all of these other things, and he's going to supply them for you. Do you have the faith to trust in that, that he's going to make a way for you to have the resources you need? So Americans, money is power. We're seeking money one way or another. Uh, for governments, they seek power through military might, the strength to impose their will on other people, the strength or power to maintain law and order in the land. And we like to think we're the ones in control of our power situation, just like we are the ones in control of our plans. Not God, not fate. I am the captain of my own ship. So in my childhood, I grew up at the tail end of what is referred to now as the Cold War. Do you guys know what the Cold War is? Most of us in here would know that. A standoff between the United States and their allies and the Soviet Union and their allies. And it manifested itself primarily, this war, as a kind of geopolitical brinkmanship based on the threat of nuclear annihilation. So our nation sought the power to keep its citizens safe through maintaining a credible threat in what became known as the acronym MAD, a very accurate uh, acronym, Mutually Assured Destruction. If you guys dare to pull the trigger, you will not be around long enough to celebrate that victory. Everyone's going to die. And that was kind of the, the, a certain anxiety that we just learned to live with growing up. And even though we pretend that we are in control of everything, did you know that the only thermonuclear bombs to ever fall on the United States were, were bombs that we accidentally dropped ourselves? So this is kind of interesting story to me. I've been trying to throw in some historical stuff to kind of uh, engage the text of Scripture better. Um, no one suspected in the early morning hours of January 21st, 1961, 
that two thermonuclear atomic bombs would fall from the sky, landing in a cotton field near the small town of Goldsboro, North Carolina. It was called Operation Chrome Dome. Have any of you guys heard of this, Operation Chrome Dome? A Cold War doomsday program that kept multiple B-52 bombers in the air at all times throughout the northern hemisphere, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, each of these planes carrying two nuclear bombs. Well, these gas-guzzling B-52s, they needed to be refueled uh, multiple times uh, on their mission shift. And uh, it was a big problem that they, they went through their fuel so fast, so they tried to figure out a way of fitting fuel bladders in the wings, a new technology, And a few weeks prior to an incident where a B-52 crashed, dropping its nuclear arsenal on this town in North Carolina, engineers at Boeing had discovered that the new modification that they were making to these planes, under the right conditions, theoretically could cause the wings of the plane to shear off. And so this plane was scheduled to be retrofitted uh, with the, the... Um, the proper equipment and reinforced so that this wouldn't happen. Well, this B-52 in question, it never got a chance to go through that retrofit uh, because one of the wings did shear off in the early morning hours of January 1961. And the captain knew that the plane was doomed, so he hit the bailout alarm. Well, this plane went crashing down to the ground at nearly the speed of sound by the time it hit the ground. So somewhere out there in the winter darkness of that night uh, lay what the military referred to as broken arrows, the remains of two 3.8 megaton Mark 39 hydrogen thermonuclear atomic bombs. Each one of those bombs contained more destructive firepower than every explosion caused by humans from the beginning of time all the way through Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One of the bombs disintegrated on impact and never had the chance to go through the arming sequence. The second bomb, however, which was ejected from the plane and deployed its own parachute to float down to the ground, it was actually the bigger problem. Later on, as the military was searching to recover their equipment, they found this Mark 39 hydrogen thermonuclear bomb hanging in a tree. And it was a seven-sequence step arming process before that bomb would go active and go off. And they discovered later on that that particular bomb had gone through six fail-safes and that only one remained at the end that kept this bomb from going off. Well, of course, the only reason this story is probably not known to most of us is because in the end, the bombs did not go off. I think of our military, our scientists, our engineers that we have in in the United States. I think of them as some of the best and brightest in the world. 
but as this story illustrates, not even the United States Air Force has the power to have things their way all the time. The power you need for your life, it doesn't come from the U.S. military. It doesn't come from your ability to accumulate money. It doesn't even come from your smarts, your looks, great though they may be, your talents, whatever. The power you need most for your life, I would say, is the power of God, alive in your circumstances flowing through the circumstances of your life, directing your circumstances, tearing down circumstances that you have turned into personal idols, and then his power to rebuild things. When you wake up and you realize, I'm not in control of anything. What is your life? A vapor or a breath, a bit of dust, the dust you will return. The scriptures actually have a whole lot to say about power. So we'll run through some of this, these things really quickly. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may, might have endurance and patience from Colossians. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. From 2 Timothy. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. That armor is a representation of power. The helmet of the breastplate of, the belt of, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And what about the sword? The sword of, all of those things are, uh, that's Paul taking the power of a, a military soldier, ready to go, who has got everything set in place and is able to make a stand against his enemies. So, Another interesting verse that says something about power. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Just because you have the power of God at work in your life, it doesn't mean everything is going your way. It doesn't mean that you are in control of every circumstance. It doesn't mean you are the one who's calling the shots. So some way, in some ways, the power of God is tied to humility. Well, I was thinking scripturally about the places where we access the power of God. So these are some of the more obvious ones, I think. We access the power of God through humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a power. That's access to power. The Word of God is a place where we uh, intersect with and find the power of God at work. You know the Scriptures are alive in a way that no other book is. There's power in there. To save a life, there's power in there. To break addiction, there's power in there. To save a marriage. No other book works like the Word of God, alive in the Scriptures. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the sun is the radiance and glory of God, the exact representation of God, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And James tells us, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. The power of the word of Jesus, holding it all together. The power of the word of Jesus, the thing that brings salvation to each one of us. Well, another uh, obvious uh, place that we access power as disciples of Jesus is the power of Holy the Holy Spirit. And that is primarily the way we interface with the power of God, is through a relationship of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that we become, in truth, a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that gift of Him in our lives, it gives us power that affects our life circumstances around us. Prayer. Prayer not like in the form of magic. Prayer is a relationship. And in that relationship, we have access to power. It's not a magical formula. It is, we've made the Lord our friend. And we find power in that relationship for our lives. Primarily, uh, and I want to talk about this one some more, we access God's power through faith. Faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. Trusting that God is going to meet us in our circumstances to help make things better. That he is going to be able, he has the power to give me justice, he has the power to give me grace. He has the power to make my circumstances right. Well, I spent quite a bit of time this week tracing this language about power through Luke's gospel. And it's actually all over the place in Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He's full of the Holy Spirit. 
what kind of situation does the Holy Spirit take him into? It's not the devil who drew him out there into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is doing something so that those circumstances could make Jesus stronger in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then after he comes out of that temptation, in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What word is this? With authority and power, he gives order orders to the evil spirits, and they come out. He's driving out demons. He's healing people. He is displaying his power and authority to authenticate who he is and the claims that he makes about himself. Here's another interesting one in the fifth chapter. News about him spread all the more. He's, he's doing this for the glory of God and for the good of the people. He seems pretty not like amused at his own ability. He's like not saying, look at what I did and how cool I am. He's, and people are going nuts and they're looking for him all over the place. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He has, a, he has a relationship to maintain because he knows where power comes from. He knows where to look for the power that he needs in his life. It's together in intimacy with his heavenly Father. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. So that's the story of these guys. They come and they can't get access to Jesus, so they actually rip the roof off of the house in order to get that person there in front of Jesus. And Jesus responds to their faith. And he, what does he do? The primary, primary need, as Jesus saw it, was not to heal this guy's body. The primary problem this guy had was that he had sins that needed to be forgiven. And of course, doing something like that causes people to question authority because who does that alone, forgive sins, but God? And, and the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, they couldn't entertain that this was actually God among them doing this miraculous work so he forgives sins and then he heals the body of this man you know it's kind of hard to argue about the authority of the person who actually is displaying all the power what do you say against someone who heals someone else but Jesus was an odd enough character that he really finds a lot of opposition from the religious leaders of his day. He's sharing meals with sinners. His disciples aren't fasting like normal disciples do. 
They aren't keeping all of the Sabbath traditions. And so people begin to question the authority of Jesus. But he is displaying works of power that are just confounding everything. And then it goes on to say this. A great number of people, this word is getting out now at this point, a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. There's so much of the Holy Spirit, there's so much of the love of God, that power at work in Jesus, that they just had to touch him. And they, they would be cured. That they would reach out in faith. And power was just going out of this guy. But you know, when Jesus starts to get excited about the power of God, it's not when he himself was utilizing the power. The time that Jesus really gets excited about the power of God was when normal human beings began to have enough faith that they began themselves to utilize the power of God in their lives and the lives of people around them. So when Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority, two things that we've written, uh, already read about Jesus, to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So these 12, these 12 apostles, they go out. They spend all of this time with Jesus. They're learning how to have faith in God to the point that miraculous things begin to happen around them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. So it starts with Jesus. And then it's the 12. And then suddenly there's this bigger group of disciples who start doing this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by toe, <laughs> two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then it says, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus is overjoyed. And he says this. And then he goes on and says, you know, don't rejoice that the demons submit in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. But why is this the time that Jesus says something like this? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Why not the crucifixion? Or even more so, the resurrection? When Jesus was raised for the dead, wouldn't that be the appropriate time to do this? And so that's kind of a, 
a curious question to me. I think that Jesus that this is the time that he saw Satan fall like lightning because normal people disciples of Jesus are acting in faith to do the works of the kingdom of God normal people beginning to do these things. Well, um, Jesus says this about that event. Says he's full of joy through the Holy Spirit. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. It's not the best, the brightest, the greatest the most powerful, the best at designing ways to harness power. Somehow this power of God is displayed among the humble, the broken, the little children, the people who don't seem to have a whole lot going on in this world, sometimes people who don't seem to have a whole lot of power over their circumstances, over their trials and their challenges. But this circle keeps getting bigger and bigger. The last thing he says about power in Luke was in chapter 24. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And that gospel ends then. And then we see Jesus back at the beginning of Acts, also written by Luke. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Power. To do what? Be witnesses. Power to be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. We access the power of God through faith. Faith is trust. When we trust God, and when we need it the most, we bump into the power of the kingdom of God. Until you bump into it, you don't know the reality of that power. Do you trust that God can work in the circumstances of your life to work good, and direct things as he will. You know, another time I need to talk more about faith, and faith is the key, I believe, to access the power of God. Faith expressed in prayer, faith through that grows through the reading of God's word and putting the scriptures in our minds and in our hearts. People will roll their eyes at me, sometimes with a snicker, sometimes with a little disdain, at the suggestion that faith is the power that people need most in their lives. Sometimes it's astonishing 
how little faith is displayed in the lives of good church-going people. Faith is trust in God. Do you trust that God is able to work in your circumstances? Do you trust that God is working in your circumstances now? Well, that story of that B-52 crash and the military trying to find their broken arrows. There's another side to this story as well. There were eight crewmen on board that B-52. Of the eight airmen on board, six of the eight had ejection seats. You You need an ejection seat to be able to survive a plane crash like that. Uh, There was a pilot named Adam Maddox who happened to be assigned a regular jump seat, not one of the ejection seats on that B-52. He was the youngest man on board. He was 27 years old at the time. Maddox was also a rarity in the United States Air Force because he was an African-American fighter pilot assigned to this specific program, Operation Chrome Dome, uh, as it got into full swing. Well, it looks like that chance assignment would cost him his life. (coughs) The the crew on board these B-52s knew that if they happened to be the one in that regular jump seat with nothing but a parachute, uh, that that person was a dead man in the event of an incident. Maddox's only chance to survive would be that after uh, the other two pilots had ejected from the cockpit, that he would somehow be able to make his way and climb through the cockpit window of the B-52 in order to climb out of the aircraft. Can you imagine something like this going on? Well, here he is. Everyone thought anyone with a parachute in this kind of circumstance is a dead man. Uh, But he was also a very religious man, as it turns out. And, of course, if you're a religious person and tragedy hits, you know, a lot of times for people who are real disciples, prayer starts coming out. You know, if you're not real mature in your faith yet and and the unexpected circumstances hit, you know, sometimes the swear words will fly out. But as you grow in Christ, sometimes that's when you begin praying is when stuff falls apart around you. Well, he started praying. And he's in, the, in this cockpit. The other pilots have already punched out with their ejector seats. And he's getting his parachute on and he prays. And this is his prayer. Well, God, if it's my time, so be it. Here goes. And he makes his way through and he climbs through the front of the the front windscreen of the B-52 bomber. It was a surreal moment when the B-52, where its 
forward airspeed was nearly zero, but the plane hadn't yet started falling. And it was in that moment that he crawled through the front windscreen that there wasn't so much airspeed that was pushing him back in the plane. And just before the plane was starting to fall, he pushes away as hard as he can from uh, the plane that's about, about ready to start tumbling down, leaping as far as he could, and then he pulled his parachute cord. Well, at first, his parachute didn't deploy because his airspeed was so slow. He was just kind of suspended for a moment in the air uh, with that plane. But then as he began falling in earnest, he welcomed the sight of his parachute filling and his, the canopy of that parachute coming open in the night sky. And then Maddox prayed the second prayer. Thank you, God. And then the plane exploded in midair and collapsed his parachute. Now Maddox was just another piece of debris falling along with this disintegrating B-52. Well, somehow a stream of air slipped into the fluttering chute and then it reinflated. And Maddox was once again floating gently toward the earth, looking up at that gently bobbing chute. Maddox once again whispered a third prayer. Thank you, God. And then he looked down and he was heading straight for the burning wreckage of the B-52 on the ground. So he prays a fourth prayer in that moment. Lord, well, Lord, he said this prayer out loud, if this is going to be the way it's going to end, so be it. And that's his prayer. And then at the last moment, a gust of wind picked up and blew him south of the burning wreckage where he landed unhurt a distance away from the crash site. And then he whispered that last prayer again. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Well, Maddox, he headed straight for the nearby, the closest farmhouse he could find to hitch a ride back to the Air Force Base outside of Goldsboro. And then he shows up at the guard gate, standing in front of the gate in a tattered flight suit, still holding a bundled parachute in his arms. Maddox told these guards that he had just bailed out of a B-52 bomber that went crashing to the ground. Well, these guards faced with a shaken up, disheveled African-American man cradling a parachute, telling a wide, wild story like that. Uh, the sentries did expect uh, exactly what you might expect a pair of guards in 1961 in the rural South to do. They arrested Maddox for stealing a parachute. Of the eight airmen on board the B-52, five ejected out, one of whom didn't survive the landing in his ejection seat. One other failed to eject. Another in a jump seat with just a standard parachute also died in the crash. To this day, Adam Columbus Maddox, who passed away a few years ago in 2018, remains the only aviator in the history of the U.S. Air Force 
to bail out of a B-52 cockpit without an ejector seat and survive the ordeal. Was it fate? Was it luck? Maddox had no doubt that God had saved his life that night. And throughout the rest of his life, those years that he was granted beyond this incident, he glorified God for saving him. Who is this who commands even the winds and the waves? All he needed was a little wind at the right time. And he says, God gave it to me. Thomas, you can come up. Sometimes the power of God that we need in our lives, it's just a little extra wind to fill our parachute. A little breeze to help direct us when we're off course. The question for us is, do we even have the faith to ask for it when we need it most? Have we built a relationship like that with the Lord our God? Well, we'll talk about faith as the way that we access the power of God more in the weeks coming uh, because that's primarily, I think that's what pushes, puts us in touch with God's power more than anything else is our faith in Him. And we need to talk about the role of prayer and all of that. So many good things that we have yet to talk about and discuss. Well, we always offer an invitation uh, to put the Lord on a baptism in this congregation. We also offer a time for the prayers of this church. Uh, just to get this in your mind and wheels turning, we're going to have a special uh, time at the end of our service on October 1st. Uh, some people have asked us uh, for prayers for healing as a congregation, and we're going to put into practice James chapter 5 and anoint them with oil. And so if you, there's some area of your life that needs healing and you have the faith to ask for the prayers of the congregation, on, uh, you can do that anytime and, and talk to the elders about that. That's their specific charge and privilege. But October 1st is going to be a time, I think that's the Sunday, uh, will be a time that we meet together as a congregation. And after the closing, we're just going to have a little bit of special prayer time for those who need healing and those who want to ask uh, for, uh, to be anointed with oil and to be healed. And if you have questions about that, read James, the fifth chapter. We're just following what the scriptures are telling us. So whatever your needs are this morning, I'll be up here and I'll hand things off to our half-hearted, enthusiastic 